Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, living history. A legend joins me this afternoon to discuss civil rights from 1957 until today. Minnie Jean Brown, The Little Rock Nine. Now, if you're unfamiliar with The Little Rock Nine, just do a quick Google and you're going to end up with thousands of hits. The Little Rock Nine took place in 1957. Nine little kids lined up outside Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. As their white brothers and sisters walked before them and entered the high school, they were stopped by bayonets and armed soldiers. There was only one reason that day why they were stopped, and that was the color of their skin. 1957, folks. The heart of the South. Minnie Jean Brown. The mob had grown quite a lot larger, and about 11 a.m., we were called to the office and told that we had to leave and we could hear the roar of the mob. We didn't see it. And we were placed in these cars. We were told to cover our heads and they drove us out of a basement. Oh my God. Driveway. And the, the cops were all scared, which was cracking me up. And they were told, once you drive out, don't stop for anything. So mm. they felt the danger. But in the meantime, on the news that night, the mob beat severely three black reporters. This afternoon, the story of Minnie Jean Brown and the Little Rock Nine, right now on Brent Holland. Can we go back to the very beginning and just explain a basic synopsis of the Little Rock Nine, and then we'll go into the details, just to give people an overview. First of all, we have to understand that schools were white and black, and historically, black teachers were paid less than white teachers, and there was, I think, less paid per student for black kids. So at my school, although it was a new school, it was built, I know this is way too much detail, but this is No, those is good. This is good. Brown versus Board of Education at Topeka Supreme Court ruled that segregation of schools, public schools, was unconstitutional. And they had a line in the ruling that said, it hurts black children in a way that can't be undone. I think that they missed something because it also hurts white children in a way that can't be undone. So it was assumed that because education for blacks was underfunded and unequal, that the idea would be that if we all went to school together, it would be fairer, or at least that's how I thought. So in, after the Supreme Court decision, each school board or area has to present a plan that's part of the decision-making process to desegregate. And Little Rock submitted a plan 
of, hmm, I found out later, 20 children in the high school. And based on the way they did it, it would have taken about 150 years to get down to elementary school. And they asked people who lived in the district to volunteer. I mean, it was very simple. In the central district, and you want to go, sign up. And I did. And then over the summer, the school board said, well, you can go to school, but you can't participate in any activities. You will just go to school. Do you still want to go? And in the end, a certain number of us said yes. And it's my understanding that there were all kinds of background checks or whatever, whatever people do to try to... Discourage. Uh, well, you know, the whole idea that they chose, I think, the best students because... They, too, believed that we couldn't compete with white kids. That's part of the American psyche, black inferiority, which was then and continues. I mean, they had to build this black inferiority because they had slaves, okay? So it's Mm -hmm. a huge part of the American psyche. Their belief was they had to choose the best students to compete with white students. And apparently, I don't know how, was one of the people that they chose. And on the first day of school, I think of the 20, actually 10 went on the first day. And one girl's parents pulled her out after all the violence and hatred. That's the kind of story in a nutshell. But we have to remember, the governor called out the Arkansas National Guard. He didn't say why. He said to keep the peace. And I don't know racial codes. And I don't know if any black people knew those either. So everybody was trying to figure out why did he have the National Guard? I mean, he's kidding what piece? I don't, there's nothing happening. So, of course, we discovered on the first day that that piece he meant was to keep us out of school. Mm-hmm. So we have the issue of states' rights, we have Supreme Court decision, and that's kind of calling out state troops in opposition to federal law kind of gets a pretty amazing historical story. It's got all the components of American sort of history and process in it. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com You're 15 years old and, and you've got all these guards in front of you with their bayonets on, folks, by the way. And they're standing there pointing their guns at you. The main thing I think that was important was that they stepped aside to allow white kids in. And when we walked close to them, they closed ranks. So that was all the photos I see. We looked very bewildered because, you know, we've been brainwashed equally about liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really maybe one of the most disturbing moments I ever had and then or now to be prevented from going to school. I mean, I just felt like, oh my goodness, all this stuff I've done, all these beliefs, all this pledging, all these flag things that are so part of the American process didn't mean me. So that disturbed me greatly. And we did look really bewildered in the photos I see now. That's what we looked. We just were absolutely disturbed by what happened. I would have been absolutely also. Now, there was no one there to guide you through the doors, no administration or or anything? You were all ostracized by yourself? We didn't get in. We didn't get in. But nobody met you outside, eh? Well, you mean in terms of school people? Yeah. 
They all hid inside, I imagine. Of course. You know, they were part of it. Yeah. And I think, and then the next day, the school board filed an injunction to delay integration. So it seems to me they were all part of it that, oh, so we have the soldiers, we have the mob, they're just going to run home and never come back. So we did have to go to federal court to see what that was about, and the federal district court ruled that integration would not be delayed. Then um, Orville Fabitz, who was the governor of Arkansas, was called to Camp David to talk to Eisenhower, and apparently they negotiated and... Governor Faubus removed the National Guard, and on the 23rd of September, we got in the school because there were no National Guard people to stop us, mm-hmm. and we were protected by Little Rock police. The mob had grown quite a lot larger, and about 11 a.m., we were called to the office and told that we had to leave, and we could hear the roar of the mob. We didn't see it. And we were placed in these cars. We were told to cover our heads. And they drove us out of a basement. Oh, my God. Driveway. And the the cops were all scared, which was cracking me up. And they were told, once you drive out, don't stop for anything. So Mm. they felt the danger. But in the meantime, on the news that night, the mob beat severely three black reporters. That's right. And thank goodness for the media because they filmed it all and it was there for everyone to see. And it's my belief that that caused Eisenhower to respond by sending the 101st Airborne on the 25th of September. And we went into the school surrounded by soldiers and they were also inside the school and we also had a personal guard. You had your own personal guard to accompany you. Did you become friends with the guard? Well, it was kind of, they were white, and Mm -hmm. this is America, you know, this is, this is, uh... 1957. um, I became friends with my guard because he took care of me. Hmm. Uh, They couldn't go into the class, but they could stop some of the things would happen that we later experienced in the hallways and all around. I have to ask you, what did your parents say? They must have been petrified every day you went to school. I'm sure they were. I never talked to my parents about it. Is that right? Because I was—I think we all didn't, because we didn't want them to know mm. what was happening. Mm-hmm. So we did the usual things. When you get in home and your parents say, how was your day? You say, fine, really quickly and disappear. They were dealing with their own torture. My dad's business went under and stuff like that. Oh. So I'm sure they were horrified and frightened for us. But I think they felt that at least for that time that the 101st was there, that we were protected inside school. What they didn't know wouldn't hurt them, I think, was the way we thought about it. And then I think the Mm -hmm. 101st left in October, and we were, and I put in quotes, protected by the Arkansas National Guard. I mean, they were ordered to do so. Their protection was iffy. At best. Was there any instances that you can recall that they turned a blind eye? Oh, yeah. I mean, part of the the way that it was all sort of framed was if a teacher didn't see something, it didn't happen. So many of the attacks, I mean, you had the usual sort of in the hall thing of being body slammed against the lockers, and oh. we couldn't put our books in because... People would actually pee in the lockers. Oh, my God. So we couldn't put our books in. The other fun thing about it was there were so many bomb threats to 
Somebody had to go through all the lockers every night after school to check for bombs. So it was fun, fun, fun. Was the Ku Klux Klan involved in a lot of this? Were they very... You know what? I don't know. I know they had an organization called the Mother's League, who were always protesting at the Capitol, which was a segregationist group. And there was quite a lot of talk against integration in the churches. And it was an abomination against God and all kinds of stuff like that. Craziness. It's really interesting to me because those are Mm -hmm. the same signs that people are using now about health care. Let's talk about that. And and also lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered people. I I tell young people, gee whiz, 52 years. They just dragged out their old signs. People are people are people. I don't know when the world will learn that. Let's talk about health care. I know that's a passion of yours, and that's something that we take for granted here in Canada. Let's talk about some of the issues, if you'd like, that are going on right now in the United States. I'm horrified by what's happening. In fact, we have one senator who is standing, well, she's part of the Blue Dog Democrats, okay. which horrifies me because I think Arkansas is one of the lowest health care states. But it's as if there's some kind of social blindness about what it could mean. I may think, I could think that the way it was framed was about, oh, we have to take care of those people who don't have insurance. But I think a person or a family Mm -hmm. should not have to go broke because they have an illness. I think that part of the framing was that it was taking care of others was the reason for health care, which really it isn't about others. It's about everybody. And the whole idea that to have something universal is socialism. But who's yelling about the highways or any of those things that are taken care through everybody's contribution? So it's a form of deep and abiding ignorance, in my opinion. I agree completely. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com. Let's shift and go back a little bit now. I really want to emphasize the tumultuous times, the dangerous times of the civil rights era, as I call it, although civil rights is still going on to this day, as you just mentioned. In 1957, Eisenhower was president. This was before President Kennedy, folks. This was before Bobby Kennedy became Attorney General. Martin Luther King. It had been, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Rosa Parks had her bus boycott started 1952, 53? No, it was 55, uh, end of year 55. Oh, forgive my ignorance. Wait, wait. And then they walked for a year. So if we want to talk about the public sort of known civil rights activity... Bus Boycott was first, and then Little Rock. So in the books, if we're looking at the modern era of black rights, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to realize civil rights include everybody. On the one hand, it's a black freedom movement, right, I think is what I would call it, actually, because of the social conditions that were so deplorable and life-threatening, I think is really key here. Rosa Parks, for for those of you who don't know, just do a Google on her. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, tons of material on the internet about her. She was a woman who was very tired one day and didn't want to sit at the back of the bus. And God love her, she said no. And that began a boycott, and it lasted a year, and uh, yeah, they, the buses were, were desegregated. 
Yeah, more than a year, which I think is a wonderful kind of sacrifice. And why does anybody care about the buses? I think that's key for the modern people. The deal was that there's a sign at the front of the bus that says white seat from front, colored seat from rear. That was my growing up in Little Rock as well as throughout the South. And it wasn't just where you sat. It was if the bus was empty in the part, it's at the door of a bus. If the bus was empty in the front, blacks still had to stand behind that line if they packed in. I know young people now love the back of the bus, so (laughs) they don't get why it made any sense. I think it's really important to explain that now you can choose to sit at the back of the bus if you want to, but then there was no choice, and that's key. I mean, so much about the black freedom movement was lack of choice and lack of access to just about everything. If washrooms, can everything. Imagine. That's what I'm trying to washrooms, get Washrooms, that's my favorite. Colored women downstairs in the basement or colored men always in the basement somewhere. And flat women up on the floor, pink door, beautiful, well-appointed. I didn't know what a white restroom looked like mm-hmm. until I was almost a grown woman. To me, most of it was about saying, well, there was... Um, a Supreme Court decision called the Dred Scott decision in the late 1800s that said no Negro has any rights that any white person should honor. Mm. Uh, So that's part of that thought process and feeling and building and teaching and persuading and and it goes through everything. I mean, it goes through history, it goes through literature, it's embedded in all aspects of the society. That's part of the problem, I think. It never got unembedded. It's still there, right, in this very sort of subtle way. You mentioned the washroom. Can I just tell you a quick story about Abraham Bolden, first American Secret Service agent, black African? Because he was a black man, in 1961, he was assigned the derogatory task of watching the washroom in Chicago on a, a little trip that Kennedy was taking to try and bolster his popularity, if you will. Wouldn't you know it, Kennedy had too many cups of coffee and he bounded down the stairs, saw Abraham Bolden at the bottom of the stairs and said, what are you doing here? Are you a police officer or are you a Secret Service agent? He said, no, sir, I'm a Secret Service agent from the Chicago office. He goes, how would you like to be the first African-American Secret service agent on my uh, White House protective staff. And he said, well, yeah. And that's how he became the first African-American Secret Service agent on protective duty. I think people in power have to see those things. Absolutely. Because they don't have the experience. Yeah. It requires them to say, this is unbelievable. Yeah. And I think that might have been what happened to the Kennedys. Certainly their lives hadn't been touched by discrimination. And so I guess they had to become aware in order to start thinking the way they did. Because there's no place in our society that helps people to think. Actually, I feel as if we're so misinformed and so miseducated that I don't know how we can think any differently. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's still true. I want to say that Cape Town, South Africa School District uses the Little Rock story to help kids kind of understand. They are in the same position. They know nothing of the totality of apartheid, and they Mm. use Little Rock as a way of helping them get a sense of their own experience. 
which I think is pretty amazing. I know Nova Scotia has a black history textbook in which the American and Canadian histories coincide or just juxtapose. Never mind, I won't even use that word. Juxtaposition? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the nearness of the two experiences. It's in all the curriculum. It's not just this sort of separate on the side in February kind of thing. And I think that's meaningful for all young people. We have to know our own histories of activism, whatever color we are. I agree with you. Because it is about people's having to take some action to make things work. That's how I see it. Have you ever been to Cape Town to give a talk? In your wildest imagination when you were 15, did you know that you were going to become a legend and inspire so many people? Not a clue, and that's good. That keeps you honest, keeps you straight. Yeah, it's good. It unfolds, and I'm pleased that it has impact, that Mm -hmm. it's meaningful. And I'm, at the age of 68, coming to understand it better as I grow older. And I'm absolutely fascinated by those kids in Little Rock, whoever they are, whether they're me or not. (laughs) Uh, Because I understand what they were up against. And it's good, I think, that we didn't know. Why is that? Because we would have been white. Because nobody is taught anything about racism. Everybody thinks they know and they have a belief system, but there is no real teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, I advocate anti-racism should be part of schooling so that people understand what is this? What is it about? How does it work? Do I want to be involved in this? So I don't think anybody knows, really. I don't. I'm an anti-racism trainer, facilitator, and it's grown people, children, teenagers, the level of not having any idea what it is, how it started, what it's about, how it has effect on both. You know, I say the Little Rock desegregation crisis hurt all the children. And that's what we have to understand, that we're all affected in a very negative way by it, by any kind of ism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to understand the relationship of power over as the basis for various kinds of discriminations. I mean, it doesn't just apply to black-white. It's across the board that any situation where one group oppresses another is about power. And so there's more of it, that discussion, in ideas about violence against women. But by and large, we're all ignorant about it, and uh, we just stay that way. This begs a question about the segregation in those days and how far we've come. There is a movement afoot to bring back segregation, and not in the way that it was before, but to have black schools for black children and white schools and black schools. In other words, if you want to go to a white or black school, that's fine too. I know they tried to bring one in here in Toronto. The reason being they said that black kids did better in all black schools. How do you feel about something like that after what you've been through? Well, George Day, who is, I mean, it's a quite discussed in the academic circles and there's a huge kind of social problem, which is called black underachievement. And my belief is that because the whole integration thing is about an assimilationist model, that my thought when I was hoping to go to Central mm-hmm. was that there would be some kind of social exchange, that what I knew was as valuable as what anybody else knew. I believe that part of the underachievement is about the social messages, about black inferiority, and I guess that people try to counter that in some way by strengthening children's understanding 
of where they come from and what we don't acknowledge the contributions of any group except white people in our history books. You know, we're putting a couple of paragraphs here and there, Hmm. but we haven't become, I mean, to the point that, I mean, this is going to be way off the mark, that great civilizations like the Maya and the Egyptians had to have space people come in to build those. You know, we're we're that stupid. You know, we really are. We will not affirm or, and that so much of European, I won't say conquering, I would say germ warfare thing, is about destroying everybody else's knowledge and claiming it. So my son wrote a paper Mm -hmm. a few years back as a student in university and from Ronald Wright, who's, I'm not sure if he's an anthropologist, who said that at the time of conquest, Europe was ramshackle disease hovels. All the trees were cut down and people were just running out of resources. And the prof said, isn't this a little harsh? John Ralston saw right now in his Mm -hmm. new book, you know, he concurs with that. I mean, we have to tell truth. And this is about the so-called black schools. Why should history of Africa be an aside on the margins? And I think the people who want to do it, I'm an integrationist myself, but I consider that it's about exchange of information. And so far, we haven't gotten that. The dominant society wants itself to be dominant at all costs, right? And I think people are railing against that. And they're saying, we need some kids who have some sense of history that's bigger than what they're getting in school. And it doesn't say that I'm for them, but it says that I'm trying to understand it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm of the position as as a white guy with a little bit of Inuit in me and a little bit of Cree and a little bit of Jamaican and all kinds of stuff mixed up. I want to do best by everybody. And and that's the way I see it. Well, it may or may not be necessary. You see, that's the thing. Right now, it may be necessary. And then at a given time, when we start to be more open to truth, it may be less necessary. But I think people are alarmed. I mean, that's one of the problems here in Little Rock. They're saying, oh, there was a documentary called Little Rock Central High School 50 Years Later, Mm -hmm, done mm -hmm. by two white filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And they have like two black kids in their advanced placement. That doesn't make sense. We're not all stupid. But someone told me a story of being in a small school. She has 40 kids around one computer, and she went to more actualized white school, and they each had computers. So people are are not knowing what to do because it's such a problem. And I see it as one more experiment to try to come to terms with some of these problems. Do you think there is a singular solution to these problems, or do you think it's multifaceted? In the end, it's about education. And I know... I know that there is a real effort to be inclusive in the textbooks, and what I know about is Ontario. I know that because I've participated in that, in that inclusivity in terms of literature and thought and ideas, and so people are really working on it. So I'm not saying that there is no effort. I think there was a period when there was less effort, and I, I won't be political about it, but I think people might know when people who were in charge wanted everything to be more like the U.S. in different ways. That, again, is ignorance, and it perpetuates itself and everything else. And so it is about education in a basic way. And it is about more people of every possible hue being part of that education process. 
I'm sorry that it's still a problem. I'm deeply disturbed that it is and would like to do some kind of magic wand mm. and fix it in the way that I would want it fixed. I'd like to thank Minnie Jean Brown for joining us this afternoon. That was part one of two. Part two will be heard immediately following this show or tomorrow, as your broadcaster will indicate. If I ruled the world, I would have the principles of nonviolence, children learning them in kindergarten. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing analytical tool. It helps you solve problems. It helps you think differently. And yet... When I go to schools, I say, the next time I come here, I want a social action. I want to see a mural with the principles of nonviolence. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time.